0: I guess it's time for another show.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. That, that's uh, this time of the week. Yep.
0: Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott.
1: Hello to all of the
0: gorgeous people out there. So not
1: quite beautiful... Not wonderful.
0: Not wonderful. Gorgeous. The gorgeous people. The gorgeous people. We're get sued again for the plagiarism. People, it keeps happening. The, people. the plagiarism is just
1: outrageous. It is. But like, what gorgeous people are going to sue us. Fair enough. It's like...
0: The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime in the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and
1: a an Nanaimo bar.
0: It's time to scarf down some dark poutine.
1: Mm, and, and you know what? No, I, I took zero years of journalism. I take <laughs> offense to that comment. My Um, zero years of journalism means something. You're supposed to say om nom. I was working my way there. Om nom nom. (laughs)
0: The show, I guess. It's episode 89. Holy cracker barrels, that's 11 away. 11 away. From 100. Yep. See, Man, oh, Coming up on the triple digits. Math. This week's story takes place in a quiet, middle class North Vancouver neighborhood in late 1990. It's not the kind of place where you think this kind of crime would happen. On Friday, December 21st, 1990, two young men with faces covered brandishing a 357 Magnum forced their way through the front door and into an unassuming home. They tied up and blindfolded their 30-year-old target, Cindy Kilburn, for transport. Cindy's two four-year-old twins, a boy and a girl, were also in the home at the time. They were taken to an upstairs bathroom and hogtied so they couldn't escape. From Paul Wilcox's book, Dead Ends, BC Crime Stories, quote... The kidnappers dragged Kilburn to a stolen car, leaving a ransom note stuck to the front door. They wanted $200,000 right away and $8.5 million for her return. It also read, If you call the police, she dies. If any media reports, she dies. Any slowdown in delivering the money, she dies. She is buried seven feet down in a wooden crate. She has three days' supply of bread and water. End quote. A fact largely unknown by Cynthia's neighbors at the time was that she is the daughter of Canada's fourth richest man, Jim or Jimmy Pattison. While you may not be familiar with Cynthia Kilburn, her father's name will be recognized by many. Jim is the owner, founder and CEO of the multi-billion dollar Jim Pattison Group. Pattison and his wife, his childhood sweetheart, have three children, daughters Mary Ann, Cynthia and one son, Jim Pattison Jr. Patterson's fortune is estimated nearly $8 billion Canadian. Although much less in 1990, this is why the creeps, with a get-rich-quick scheme, kidnapped and held his daughter Cynthia on that December day all those years ago. This is the story of the billionaire's daughter, the kidnapping of Cynthia Kilburn.
1: Wow, having grown up here my whole life, either I have early-onset Alzheimer's, or just a shitty memory. Why don't I remember this? Well, it got pretty big news, but
0: how old were you in 91? Like 91? I was like,
1: uh, 16? Yay. You probably had better things to do than pay attention to the paper, Scott. Oh, you have no idea that I... No, I did not. Oh. No. It was just, yeah, video games and... Uh, we're personally
0: actually really familiar with Jim Patterson. This is correct. We used to work in the same building as the diminutive, nonagenarian, that's somebody who's 90, known for his broad smile and often flamboyantly colored and patterned sports jackets. Yeah, yeah, he
1: I many a time I rode the elevator with him. Just yeah, you would think from what we see billionaires to be on TV. Yeah. You would think always security or something. No, just walking around, doing his thing.
0: What I noticed about him is how early he came to work and how late he left.
1: N- the man is known for his work ethic. Mm-hmm.
0: Like he would be showing up when I was coming in for a 7 a.m. shift. He would yeah. be there in the elevator.
1: Yeah, I'm waiting for you. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. But he remembered your name. I see you're well, on time, Mike. Yes, I see you're on
0: time. And he would remember your name if you'd told him once. So let's get back to this. The note on Cynthia Kilburn's door was discovered a few hours after she'd been kidnapped. Cynthia's mother Mary Pattison, unable to contact her, sent an employee to their residence. The children were discovered inside the house where they'd been left, thankfully physically unhurt but emotionally shaken up and terrified.
1: Yeah, four is a very... uh, that's not a time you need to be traumatized.
0: No, I can't imagine what would go through this four-year-old's mind in this situation. It had to impact them a great deal to be tied up and left behind while hearing their mother fight with their abductors and then everything go quiet.
1: Well, four was the time of my trauma, and I can only speak to the fact that it greatly impacted me, so I guarantee you yeah. this played a huge role. For sure.
0: The Pattisons ignored the first instruction on the note and called the police right away. I mean, who would do such a thing? They yeah. had no idea. Yeah, yeah. Cynthia was possibly buried somewhere, maybe hurt, and surely terrified according to the note they only had so much time so everyone had to be on their toes north vancouver rcmp called an experienced assistance to create a plan that would hopefully bring cynthia home quickly and safely oh, okay this was not the pattison's first rodeo though they dealt with at least two extortion attempts before
1: hmm. and at least two that were public I, I guess that kind of goes with the territory. Yeah, I I not not in the sense that like yeah you know you you're right of passage, better. but I mean like I guess
0: this is part of, of being wealthy. Yeah, success. According to a 1990 article from the Vancouver Sun on Boxing Day in 1985, a Burnaby woman and a man from California tried to get Jim to turn over two million dollars while making unspecified threats over the phone. Charges were later stayed against the two; they didn't oh. get any money. Oh, okay. Uh, In 1986, Jim Pattison began receiving letters from a 19-year-old man saying that, again, for $2 million, he would release the names of people who wanted Jim Pattison dead. A sting was set up where bags of paper made to look like bundles of cash were left uh, by a Save-On Foods store, which, of course, Jim Pattison owns the save on (laughs) Uh, The young man was swarmed by police and taken into custody when he came to claim his prize. (laughs) We're unsure what the outcome of that case was. He could have been somebody who was uh, not oh, mentally well. Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. I, I'm quite confident the outcome wasn't like rainbows and unicorns, though.
0: We know uh, someone personally who tried to contact <laughs> uh, Jim Pattison and was not well.
1: Oh God! Yeah. What
0: was it that uh, he left, Mr. Pattison, If you oh, remember. Carl? Okay,
1: so my my in the same building. Yes. That we all worked in. Yes this individual i believe left with security yeah uh the front security a uh pack uh, it was a package that i want to say it was in like an altoids container or okay. something it was something like that like some a tin some kind of yes yeah, small tin uh it inside it if i remember correctly was uh a silver coin yep a few sticks of pocky
0: Okay, Pocky, Pocky for those who don't know are like cookie sticks from Japan.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're delicious. You can get them in many different flavors. I think they're Japanese. Uh, I think some paper clips. Uh-huh. Oh god, I'm struggling to remember. And what. was there a note or anything like that? I think there was, yeah. And and I I think the the note was so this individual at the time was believing that silver was the way to invest. Okay. And he had this great ski, like not scheme, but he had this like Here's if you invest in silver right now, just cha-ching. And so the the that was why there was a silver coin in there. It was like, I'm going to give you some business advice. Oh, Mr. so this Mr. This, this gentleman
0: who was working as a technical support representative at a correct at a call center correct. for a
1: telecom was offering jimmy pattison business advice business advice and the means to start this with a investment in his one one silver coin uh i i don't know if the note i don't think it made it to mr pattison i gotcha i don't think it made it to him but this this individual was known to do some other wacky things but and guess i guess who he ended up working for Mm -hmm. me Mm hmm. (laughs) So mm-hmm. that
0: particular person mm-hmm. who had a, a real history of interesting things ended up working for me and uh
1: did I fire him? No. You got him promoted. I got him promoted. Yeah. Way to go, Mike. Wait <laughs> in, a in his defense. Yeah. He got healthy. There you go. The
0: Patterson family had been through this before. I don't know if they had any kidnapping insurance before get or anything that? like that, Is that Yeah. A thing? Apparently you can. Oh. Um There are companies that insure wealthy families and travelers to high-risk destinations from kidnapping and ransom and reimburse any losses that they incur. Oh. And many insurance companies offer this service as part of personal coverage. And we're unsure if the, like I said, if the Pattersons had this kind of coverage. Yep. But I don't think it was as ubiquitous in 1990. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, this type of kidnapping is actually really rare. There's seven different subtypes of kidnapping. Oh. According to Diana M. Concannon's book, Kidnapping, An Investigator's Guide, there are quote domestic kidnapping defined as an intra-family kidnapping to further custody when mm-hmm. the legal right yeah. is absent so yep. that's quite common yeah
1: that's that's the one I think we probably hear of
0: most hmm political kidnapping defined as kidnapping to further a political agenda okay so the Iran hostages for example
1: oh yes yes yeah
0: yes, you know it yes.
1: happens a lot in the Philippines
0: yeah that kind of thing predatory kidnapping adult victim defined as the kidnapping of adult to satisfy the lust of the offender.
1: Okay, well, we covered a lot of that.
0: We have predatory kidnapping child victim defined as kidnapping of a minor to satisfy the lust of the offender. Mm. We haven't covered a lot of that and you can probably figure out why Mm because it's very disturbing. Mm Mm-hmm. Revenge kidnapping, defined as kidnapping, which is perpetrated by an irrational individual who kidnaps to rectify a real or perceived wrong. So if you look at the beginning of the first episode of Mindhunter, the guy has the lady hostage, wants his wife there. Doing great with the analogies. Kind of thing. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Staged kidnapping, defined as kidnapping, which is feigned to distract from another crime or undisclosed situation. We hear about that sometimes. Yeah, people faking a kidnapping. Yeah, we heard about that. That with the Toronto, the uh, Asian student in Toronto who faked his kidnapping to acquire some money from his parents.
1: Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes.
0: Yeah, but this case is uh, what is called a profit kidnapping, defined as kidnapping for actual or perceived gain. And this is really rare in Canada. The victims of for-profit kidnapping are taken from their homes 78% of the time, and 63% of the time a firearm is used to gain control, just Mm. like in this case. Mm. In these kinds of for-profit abductions, by a slim margin, 53% of the victims do not survive their abductions. Oh, really? So they may be rare, but... Uh, the
1: results are not...
0: half and There's half and half, a little better than half and half that you're not going to live. I don't like those odds. No, that's not good. No. I'm sure that's a statistic that wasn't lost on the Pattisons and the police. Mm-hmm. So on the police's advice, Jimmy Pattison immediately organized a $200,000 cash withdrawal from his bank to have it ready to go.
1: Not something I've ever done.
0: Not something I've ever been capable of doing.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Uh, the calls started to come to numbers clearly supplied by cynthia to her abductors according to paul wilcox's in dead ends a male caller phoned quote patterson's direct line alan kilburn's office then his cell phone he said the gang had cynthia kilburn and threatened to kill her unless his instructions were followed around 8:15 p.m he called alan kilburn's cell phone and the calls now were being recorded by police He gave instructions for the drop of the first $200,000. The ransom drop is critical. The chance for police to grab the kidnapper and find out where the victim is being
1: held, end quote. Yeah, absolutely. This is the prime time to uh, grab the uh, offender. Yeah. So Vancouver
0: people are going to recognize a lot of the place names that we're talking about this time because it... Sort of takes place all over Vancouver and North Van.
1: Is one of those locations Mike's office? No, it is not.
0: Okay. The drop location was to be the busy Hudson's Bay Department store at Granville in Georgia. hmm Which has a mall attached and happens to be a transit hub for the SkyTrain and intercity buses. Yep. As it was only days before Christmas, like four days before Christmas, the downtown was packed with people buying gifts for the upcoming holidays.
1: Oh, it would have probably been wall-to-wall with people?
0: Oh, totally. Super busy. Yeah. From Dead Ends, Alan Kilburn, Cynthia's husband, was told to, quote, put the money in a red sports bag and take it to a specific entrance in the giant Hudson's Bay store downtown. There would be a note under a red tablecloth just inside the door, the kidnapper said. Kilburn had 30 seconds to follow the instructions and drop off the money. It worked. Kilburn left the bag under a table as the note demanded. The kidnapper watched him leave. Stuffed the red bag full of money in a backpack and ran into the attached mall. End quote. Wow. Somehow the kidnapper managed to elude the plainclothes officers who gave chase. They were everywhere in there. Wow. Yeah. Probably every other person was a cop.
1: I was not, I was expecting a pretty quick nope. end of the story here. So he told the Pattisons
0: not to involve police and was livid that they hadn't followed orders. The kidnapper, hiding somewhere in the crowded mall, started calling Alan Kilburn on his cell phone, demanding he call the cops off if he ever wanted to see Cynthia alive again.
1: Okay, but seriously, how you, you must expect that the police will be contacted. That has to be, as a kidnapper, part of your plan. It really should be if it's not. How will I ev- evade the police? Should be. Should be. You should have lots of
0: things planned, and we'll see as this what, goes along.
1: One of them being don't kidnap. There is that.
0: Yeah. Eventually, when it seemed like the heat had died down, the kidnapper, with his money in the backpack, left the Four Seasons washroom that he was hiding in and took off into the night. So
1: he went into the Four Seasons hotel that adjoined the mall. Yep. And hid in the bathroom in there. Yep. I guess at that time too, cameras must not have been like, uh, security cameras must not have been, be as prevalent as they are now.
0: Well, there were security cameras because yep. they did get an actually really good description of them from the police oh, really? who were there. And, okay. Yep. Oh. The kidnapper was proud of himself for getting away with the cash and losing some really experienced cops. hmm However, his joy was short lived. <laughs> okay. A friend of Cynthia Kilburn's, who lived in North Vancouver, answered her door around the same time. Someone desperately wanted in. There was a frantic Cynthia, still in her housecoat, duct tape hanging from her wrists and face, hair disheveled from the sleeping bag she'd been wrapped up in for the last 14 hours. Oh! Cynthia told her story to the police, who soon arrived. After being tossed into the back of a car, tied up with a sleeping bag over her head, barely able to breathe... She was taken to a house a short drive from hers and held there. The voices she heard throughout her captivity were young, probably teenagers, she thought. Mm. The leader of the crew, the mastermind, was the one who'd gone to get the money from the drop. He'd not checked in at the appointed time. In fact, a long time had gone by. The other kidnappers were convinced that something was wrong, or maybe their leader had gotten the money and took off, intending to keep it for himself.
1: Yeah, 200000 is a lot of... A
0: lot of cake, a lot yeah. Of, yeah. a lot of cash. From Dead Ends, quote, They decided to let Cynthia go, alternately apologizing to her and threatening and making excuses. Suspect one told her the original plan had been to take her on a plane and administer a heroin overdose and kill her. Oh. The two teens argued about where to drop Kilburn and then agreed to leave her near one of her friend's houses in North Vancouver. The van stopped and Kilburn had one more moment of terror as she waited to be shot. Instead, Suspect 2 apologized and said he got greedy. Suspect 1 walked her a short distance and then told her to run, end quote.
1: So uh, I clued in uh, pretty early when you said uh, when she was first taken, uh, it, it was a short drive. Yeah. So, uh. They're in, still
0: in North Fan somewhere. Yeah,
1: so I'm, I'm suspecting that there's going to be some familiarity with the family and because obviously they know who the father is. No. Mm. Nope. What? <laughs> what? Police were frustrated
0: they'd lost the money man, especially after finding he was the instigator. Police at the bay were able to get a decent description of the young man in his 20s and what he was wearing you know, from the security guards, yeah. the police, yeah, yeah. the cameras. Ebola went out as investigators went to work trying to figure out who'd kidnapped and thankfully released Cynthia Kilburn. The recovery of the money would be important
1: too. The Pattersons were just grateful that they had their daughter back. Absolutely, that would be like instant, like wouldn't give a, wouldn't give a shit anymore about the money at this point. Well... It wouldn't. You, wouldn't. You, you you'd you'd be pissed off. Yeah. But you, you'd be like, oh, I've yeah. got my kid back.
0: The years of healing could begin, but they they were still fearful that something more might take place, especially as the perpetrators had gotten away until this point.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Police didn't have long to wait, though. Oh, uh-huh. uh-huh. idiocy has a way of revealing the idiots.
1: You don't say. <laughs> I thought that like they just would have like uh, with such a well planned right adventure that everything would just like they would sail away well no it Jamaica. didn't quite happen that way yeah.
0: okay cops would get their break the very next day according to an article in the vancouver sun on december 24th 1990 by mary lynn young at two thirty a.m on saturday december 22nd a young man and a young female rented a room at the Grouse Inn in North Vancouver. I know exactly where that is. They wanted the room for a week, and not having a credit card, the young pair, who looked to be in their late teens or maybe even early 20s, paid a $600 deposit on the room using $100 bills. Yeah, not suspicious. Early on Saturday morning, Star Limousines received a call. <laughs> Someone wanted to book a stretch limo for the day which cost $600. At around 11 a.m., the 28-year-old driver, Dino Falcone, picked up three young males at a townhouse on East 27th. He was then ordered to pick up a female at a home in North Van. Another two were picked up at Westview Mall, just above Highway 1, and a final passenger was waiting outside a hairdresser's shop. Oh, I... I... It gets better, Scott. Mm. From the Vancouver Sun article, quote, They were young, well-mannered, and well-dressed. Dino said, adding that the three said they were just finishing high school, and I'll look between the ages of seventeen and twenty one. They asked me where to get briefcases. Oh my god. End quote. <laughs> oh my god. What what's more gangster than
1: having a briefcase, Scott? Oh my god. I'm a grown up now. Yeah. I'm gonna get me a briefcase. You know, because it's very like seventeen year olds love them a briefcase. That's what I see, like nonstop. Will, I, just I drive a by a school with the handcuffs on it. Yeah, <laughs> just drive by any school, you'll see a ton of briefcases. They're like, all it, walking it, around with briefcases. And nothing says uh, "I didn't just kidnap somebody" than seventeen-year-olds with wads of cash and briefcases and limousines. Oh, it
0: gets better. After taking their limo driver to lunch at the Boston <laughs> Pizza, the seven began a spending spree in downtown Vancouver. <laughs>
1: Like wait wait at least a week maybe.
0: Yeah. No. A, a lot of the articles that I have read in some of the books on this situation mentioned the Goodfellas movie and how Robert De Niro said don't spend any money. Yeah. And that was that same year like they 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 could have seen that movie. They should have probably
1: watched. They that. they should
0: have. No clearly. Clearly they weren't. No the what they heard in that movie was
1: Spend immediately.
0: Yep. Uh, From a Vancouver Sun, from the Vancouver Sun article, quote, the seven stopped in Gastown and at the Pacific Center Mall. They bought leather jackets, polo shirts, two guitars, an amplifier shoes, seven men's suits, and two gold watches. Mm, Wow. They paid cash. I couldn't believe it, Falcone said. (laughs) The trunk was just filled, and you know how big a back of, the back of a limo is? They didn't think twice about how much they'd spent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When Falcone asked where they got the funds, he said one of the youths said his father had sent him extra money because he, quote, wanted him to have a good Christmas. Oh, that's unquote. that's lovely. He said a few of them said they, had, they would save $100 a month throughout the year so they could go on a spending spree. He said, I thought it was unexpected because they were so young but just figured they were rich kids.
1: Which end I quote, yeah, which I can get that—that that is North Van. Yeah, North Van is a very, very affluent area, yeah, especially West Vancouver. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. British properties, all that. Oh, kind of stuff. lordy, lordy. Well, that is where uh,
0: the Pattisons do. I do believe they live now. But yeah,
1: they probably own all the homes there. Yeah,
0: <laughs> they built one giant one. Yeah, these kids were rich, all right. They had two hundred thousand dollars of Jimmy Pattison's cash. <laughs> yeah. And we'll take a break here. <laughs> Fucking
1: morons. <laughs> it all gets better. Oh, great.
0: And we're back. So oddly, where do you think was the first place that these guys would make their stop? One of the first places they'd stop.
1: An investment banker.
0: No, they stopped at the Hudson's Bay store on Georgia and Granville. Oh,
1: you mean the place where they uh, made the drop off and and one fled? Yes that that place where he was 24 hours previous
0: yes that very same store that the money had disappeared from just the night before
1: well it is a, it, it was a pretty good store
0: so the guards of the bay had been supplied with an excellent description <laughs> oh, some of them no, had seen no, him no, no. and <laughs> no. yeah and here here this guy was on a spending spree oh, fuck. with his pals while a stretch limo waited outside According to dead ends, but unverified anyone else, the group even gave a panhandler $1,000 at one stop. Fantastic. That was probably the nicest thing they did all day. That
1: that makes up for kidnapping and traumatizing a a woman and her two children. Exactly.
0: After leaving downtown, the limo made its way to Park Royal in West West Vancouver. There, two suspects were arrested as they exited the limousine. Oh, my God. After arresting others connected to the tainted spending spree, cops raided the room at the Grouse Inn, confiscating all the loot that the offenders had spent the day buying.
1: Like, they wouldn't have even had the time to put on a single one of those suits or They'd enjoy... probably had the watches on. The watches, sure, but like... Yeah.
0: In all, eight people were taken into custody and charged. The ringleader was Chadwick Shane Mulvihill, a 21-year-old man of, quote, no fixed address. He was charged with kidnapping, unlawful confinement, extortion, and possession of stolen property.
1: I'm not going to lie, though. I like the name Chadwick.
0: Yeah. It's very real. 19-year-old Christian Snellgrove of North Vancouver was charged with kidnapping, forcible confinement, and extortion. hmm I like Snellgrove, too. Snellgrove? They, they have fancy names. They do.
1: They sound like North Vancouver names. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, Chad Carl Defoe, yep. 19, of Richmond, and Sheldon Frederick Kwan, 18, of North Vancouver, were charged with possession of stolen property. There were also three juveniles involved who'd have their cases moved up to adult court, so we can name them. Oh, great. According to an article in in the Edmonton Sun, in the Edmonton Journal Sun, the youngsters names were Kamyar Porganad, 17, Homan Hoshier, 17 and 16 year old nanami adam Kateoka. those three were charged with kidnapping unlawful confinement extortion possession of stolen property and unlawful possession of the 357 magnum also stolen another female young offender the eighth person who was unnamed Also faced a charge of possession of stolen goods. It's weird how they're always a little easier on the girl, right?
1: Yeah, and I'm like, I'm now struck by the fact that there were eight people involved. Like, just like for the sake of like, that's you've got, you're not going to get as much money. You now have to divide it by eight people.
0: Well, it's eight point five million they were after. Sure. Okay. Okay. I guess.
1: Yeah. Okay. Fine. Yeah. They called it quits after two hundred thousand.
0: Yeah. Well. The story began to come out as the perpetrators began talking to police. Although Snellgrove initially gave them a bullshit story in an attempt to lead them in another direction, eventually the details emerged.
1: Classic Snellgrove.
0: Chad Mulvihill had read Jim Patterson's 1987 autobiography called Simply Jimmy. Pattison had been in the public uh, as a successful businessman and philanthropist for years. His public-facing notoriety peaked as he chaired the committee that brought the world to Vancouver for Expo 86.
1: Yeah, he had the Princess Diana and Charles were on, yeah. his, on his yacht during the Expo 86. Exactly. Yeah, yeah,
0: It was in this book that Mulvihill learned of Cynthia's existence. And then he began to formulate his get-rich-quick via kidnapping plan. Mulvihill approached a friend we'll call Jackson at his home to help him initially. Jackson refused, saying he knew he could get in touch with somebody and called Christian Snellgrove a friend with contacts. From court documents, quote, Snellgrove apparently had the connection, but Snellgrove himself turned out to be interested. So yeah, I got the connections, but I, I count me in.
1: I don't understand. What connections?
0: Well, it goes on. To get connections to the underworld? Yes. Or vampires. Well, that too. Jackson handed Mulvihill the phone and the two spoke briefly about how much money there was to be made. Fifteen minutes later, after the phone call ended, Snellgrove was at the door. Hmm. From court documents, Mulvihill explained to Snellgrove that a woman was to be taken and hidden in a cabin in Squamish until the ransom was paid. She would then be released. He asked Snellgrove whether he was interested. Mulvihill and Snellgrove went to the telephone in the kitchen they started making telephone calls there to put a, quote, crew together.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a great way to do it, phones. <laughs>
0: yeah, no one's ever listening there. Nope. Well, I don't know. This is before anything, though. <clears throat> One of the calls they made was to 16-year-old Nanami Adam Kataoka, someone who they'd dealt with before and was rumored to have gang connections. Kataoka recruited 17-year-old Homan Hushiar, who in turn recruited his pal, 17-year-old Kamyar Porganod. Good, great pronunciation, but Oh, th- th- thanks. I've been practicing. Yeah. Hociare and Porgonod would do the actual kidnapping. Okay. Snellgrove told the pair that they could earn $15,000 each for the job with a bonus of $5,000 for a job well done.
1: Well, just, you know, it's good to motivate with bonuses. <laughs> From court
0: documents, quote, To earn the $15,000 they would have to kidnap a lady, there would be two little kids there that would have to be dealt with, they would have to leave a ransom note. They were to call Snellgrove after the job was done, and Snellgrove and somebody would meet them, take the girl, and drop off the cash.
1: So do the riskiest
0: job. Yeah, give the and, riskiest and, job to two 17-year-olds.
1: And give them the least amount of money. Right. Brilliant.
0: Mulvihill and Snellgrove had scoped out the location, a cul-de-sac in North Vancouver's Lynn Valley neighborhood. They knew what time Alan Kilburn left... And the plan was to go in just after that on Friday morning. Snellgrove handed the boys a ransom note. With all the planning around the actual abduction itself, no plans were in place in regard to where they should hold Cynthia after they got her. Holy sweet baby Jesus! So it's a bit of a—that's a large oversight. That's
1: a pretty substantial oversight. I guess you're not planning on success at that point.
0: Well, we're going to kidnap a lady. What are you going to do with her?
1: I don't know. We haven't thought that far
0: ahead. We're going to hold on to her. So where? Once,
1: once you take this person... What are you, where are you going to put them? This is a great question, Mike. Well, they didn't think of that, really. Clearly. In a sleeping bag.
0: <laughs> well, that's where they had her.
1: Yeah, well, it's like the uh, if she doesn't know where she is, then it, it, it doesn't matter where they are, I guess.
0: At 10 a.m. on the morning of the abduction... Katayoka was knocking on Jackson's door. Hmm. Evidence given by Jackson provides the details about what happened next. He said, She's here. Call Chad. I had never seen him before. I saw a van parked outside the house, a Toyota, fairly new. I'm in my robe, not expecting anyone. No one else was at home, End quote. Jackson phoned Mulvihill, asking him what the hell was going on. Mulvihill said... Sorry, I had no choice but to use your house. Just keep her there and I'll be over. <laughs> oh, my bunch of clown shoes. In the meantime, Kadeoka had backed the Toyota into the driveway and was knocking at the back door. Kadeoka said, let's get her in. And although Jackson went out to the driveway, when he saw a five foot long human sized bundle wrapped in a sleeping bag in the back of the Toyota, he froze. Mm hmm. Catioka motioned for Jackson to get inside, but Jackson refused, saying, I'm not touching her. Mm -hmm. Catioka managed to get Cynthia into the house and laid her on the living room floor. Because that's a great place to keep her. (laughs) It's it's
1: very, very uh, well hidden.
0: Jackson said, can't keep her there. Take her downstairs. Can you imagine what's going through her poor mind? Oh, well. Like, holy
1: crap. She's got a... (laughs) Uh, I just these guys just like
0: it's like a Benny Hill sketch. It
1: really is. Yeah. It really is. Like it's it's they even once the getter inside, they still don't know where to put it. Oh, the floor. Whoa, oh, you idiots in the basement. Oh, okay.
0: from Jackson's evidence, quote: I grabbed one end, took the bundle to the basement. The blanket slipped over her head. I saw all it was all taped up. It looked like silver electrician's tape. The whole head was taped. I could see some portions of hair. Her whole face was taped over the eyes. Took her downstairs to the storage room. I put a carpet on the floor. Oh, my God. That would be terrifying. Yeah. Of being well, like all wrapped. Oh, my God. Cynthia, barely able to breathe and in fear of her life, just laid still. Yeah, smart. At 1030 a.m., Snellgrove and Mulvihill arrived. Jackson was livid. He wanted the kidnappers and their victim out of the house, like, right now. Mm-hmm. After a few phone calls, Snellgrove had organized another house on Capilano Road to store their cargo for the day. Oh. So someone was kind enough to say, yeah, sure, bring the kidnapped lady over here. It's good to have friends,
1: Mike. It's good to have friends. It's good to have friends. Oh, boy. Hey, yo, so I like kidnapped chick. You okay if we just leave her at your place for a bit? Sure. Uh, Thanks, man.
0: Snellgrove, Mulvihill, and Katayoka put Cynthia back in the van, and Snellgrove and Mulvihill drove up Edgemont to their destination on Cap Road. Catioco was left behind to watch Cynthia. He fell asleep at one point. When he awoke, he said, oh, it's getting late, and told Cynthia that he had to make a telephone call. He then ensured that her hands were tied and her feet were bound together all very tightly. He then took a cloth and put it in Cynthia's mouth and tied it around her head, saying, I want to find you this way when I get back. He left. Home quote.
1: Geez. So, like, A, the dude napped. Yeah. Like, that's pretty, like, I I would be so uh, wound up. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then, and then like, okay, so, he person we've kidnapped, it's going to take off for a bit. It's Just,
0: getting late, so he's panicking. Yeah. There's no sign ah. of Mulvihill who was supposed to have returned by now. He had gone to pick up the money. Cynthia overheard Katayoka talking to someone quietly. When he came back, he said, Quote, We are going to let you go. You know there has been a screw-up. Katayoka said he believed that he'd been double-crossed and that he feared someone was going to come back and kill them both. Hmm. When Snellgrove came back, after a brief discussion, the two decided to let Cynthia go, although Snellgrove was reluctant at first. Katayoka told Cynthia that he was supposed to receive $100,000 for his part in the kidnapping. So, part of the $8 million, I guess. Mm-hmm. It was also him who told her that there'd been a plan for her to be OD'd with heroin. Yeah. Katayoka got into the back seat of Snellgrove's car with Cynthia, and Snellgrove drove. They were going to drop Cynthia off at her friend's place in North Van. From court documents, quote, "...while in the vehicle, Snellgrove apologized and said he'd got greedy. He told her that this was something that she and her kids were going to remember for the rest of their lives." He also said, quote, we have to get you home, Cynthia. You're a good person, end quote.
1: Well, I mean, I'm glad that this individual has a conscience. Well, I, don't, I don't understand what I he... I guess
0: that's what you could call it.
1: Uh, I don't understand why uh, he told her this was something that she and her kids were going to remember for the rest of it. Like That almost sounds like it. he's trying to spin it in a pause. Well, it's a great story for you guys. Like, yeah, I don't know if that's how he's trying or he's like, oh, my God, this is something you guys are always going to remember. You know, So, yeah. um, but the way it's phrased there in a quote makes it definitely sound like he, he was like, this will be a great story for you and the kids.
0: We have to get you home, Cynthia. You're a good person. Yeah, Just think about the story. It's and like condescending fe- crapola. Oh, my fuck. Cynthia still bound and blindfolded was sure that this was a ruse to keep her calm while they drove her to the place where they meant to shoot her and dispose of her body.
1: Yeah as easy it is as it is for, for us to kind of joke and, and laugh at these buffoons in her shoes. she is is yeah. constant fear. Yep. constant worry that at any second I could be shot and oh my God, that t- incredibly traumatizing.
0: Yep. From court documents, quote, When the vehicle stopped, Katioka and Snellgrove got out. For a moment, Cynthia was terrified that they were going to shoot her. Snellgrove put his hands on her shoulders and told her again that he was sorry this had happened. Katioka walked a short distance with her and told her, quote, I'm Japanese, but don't tell police. I lived near you. Maybe I will see you again, end quote. He then asked her if she was still going to live in the same house. A car approached and Cadioca told her he had to go and then told her to run, end quote.
1: Okay, so it's clear that this Cadioca really didn't understand the severity of what he was doing. Or he did,
0: and he was telling her to be afraid, be very afraid. Uh,
1: I don't know, my gut tells me that he, he just is not understanding how serious this was. Or not caring. Maybe then, he was a psychopath. Because then you don't say, I'm Japanese, but don't tell the police I live near. Like, you just say, I live around here. Or, I'm going to see you. I'll be watching. Who knows you, what his uh, motives were. Oh, my Lord. Barefoot and terrified,
0: Cynthia clawed the tape from her eyes and ran toward the familiar home of her friend. Surely, she had to be expecting a bullet in the back at mm-hmm. any moment, oh but it didn't come.
1: Can, can you imagine that fear? I can't. Like, just no, thinking at any second. Yeah. Like preparing for it. Mentally preparing to be shot and killed.
0: Yeah. She was relieved to see Alan when he arrived shortly after. When the news broke, many of Cynthia's neighbors had no idea that she was Jim Pattison's daughter, and that anonymity was forever broken mm. in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Mulvihill had been the author of the ransom note. He'd used his girlfriend's mother's typewriter to write it. Had all gone according to plan, Mulvihill had chartered a plane to the Grand Cayman Islands for December 27th. Hmm. Mulvahill had a bit of a record prior to his involvement in the kidnapping.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay.
0: From court documents, quote, On April 6, 1990, he was given a suspended sentence and placed on probation for one year for possession of stolen property over the value of $1,000 and possession of an unregistered restricted weapon. That weapon... One of a number stolen from his mother's boyfriend was a handgun. A consequence of that conviction, he was, in fact, on probation at the time that these offenses were committed. Hmm. On April 30th, 1991, he was convicted of possession of a weapon for a purpose dangerous to the public peace, an offense which had occurred prior to the time for that which he was sentenced a year earlier. The weapon in that case was a shotgun. The purpose for which he had it in his possession was to rob the employees of McDonald's restaurant, end quote.
1: So uh, th- clearly this kid uh, wanted things. Mall of the Hill. he was 21. So oh, was not he 21? Oh, yes. Okay, all right. Well, this dillweed, he clearly wanted things, just didn't want to have to work for them or pay for them. Yeah. His strategy for success financially is to just take it.
0: Yep. Only two days into their trial, Mulvihill and Snellgrove changed their pleas to guilty. Mm. From Dead Ends, quote, Mulvihill got life for kidnapping and extortion and seven years for confining the children. Snellgrove was sentenced to 13 years for each of the kidnapping and extortion charges and seven years for his role in the twins' confinement.
1: Mm.
0: Both appealed and Mulvihill's life terms were reduced to 18 years and Snellgrove's sentences reduced from 13 to 10 years. Mm. The others, judged minor players, got shorter sentences, so everybody was convicted. Yeah. At their initial sentencing, both Snellgrove and Mulvihill tearfully expressed regret for the kidnapping and harm that they'd caused. Interesting that they saw fit to appeal after that. Yeah, they felt so guilty.
1: Yeah. They're going to appeal.
0: Mulvihill was released on parole less than halfway through his 18-year sentence. Mulvihill initially worked at various labor jobs, unable to hold one down. He returned to what he thought would make him some quick cash. Oh, no. From court documents. Mr. Mulvihill devised a scheme to extort money from Robin Rook's father. Robin Rook, uh, Mr. Rook is a contractor on the island. Oh, okay. On the pretense of hiring Mr. Rook to build a dock, Mr. Mulvihill lured him to an isolated location by Shonigan Lake. Oh, that's a beautiful place. He put a gun to the back of Mr. Rook's neck and threatened to kill him. He told Mr. Rook that this was, quote, payback for something Mr. Rook's father had previously done. He forced Mr. Rook to his knees and handcuffed him. He tried to force Mr. Rook into the trunk of Mr. Rook's vehicle, but when Mr. Rook refused to get in, Mr. Mulvihill forced him into the vehicle's passenger seat. Unbeknownst to Mr. Mulvihill, Mr. Rook had managed to free one hand from the handcuffs. Mr. Mulvihill got into the driver's side and set the vehicle in motion. He warned Mr. Rook, saying, Stay there. Safety's off. I'll fucking kill you. As the vehicle was making a turn from a side road onto West Seanigan Lake Road, Mr. Rook opened the passenger door and jumped out of the moving vehicle. He hit the ground, skidded, and rolled. He got up, ran as fast as he could, and burst into a nearby residence, a trailer home. The residents phoned police. Several months later, Mr. Mulvihill was arrested in Courtney, B.C., at arrest, he had in his possession a twenty-two caliber handgun, end quote. <sighs> so he went back to kidnapping.
1: Yep. Well, again, he is not somebody who wants to work and earn his way through life.
0: Well, you never know. I don't know. Maybe he's changed. To although, this point, to, to the to point, point
1: of what we're reading
0: here. Although he was sentenced to another 20 years in 2003, it appears he may be out and about and living here in Surrey as of this recording. So sleep tight, folks.
1: By folks, you mean us? Yeah. <laughs>
0: And if you're listening, uh, Chadwick Mulvihill, we are broke. We have no money.
1: Yeah. You know, podcasting ain't what you think it is. No,
0: it is definitely not. We're not sitting here in a sparkly studio. It's a bedroom. <laughs>
1: it literally is. Yes. Yeah.
0: Snellgrove served just over three years for his part in the crime. Drugs and violence sent him back to jail for another four years in 2003. Mm, mm. I don't know what's become of him. Yeah. Here's one. Katayoka was also out after three years. After reacquainting himself with his gang pals, he ended up getting caught smuggling ecstasy pills, weed, and hash in Virginia in 2007 with a buddy. Oh, my God. According to the Vancouver Sun, Cadioca was found in a Buenos Aires parking lot in October 2009, lying face down, wearing latex gloves, with bullet wounds in his head, stomach, and leg. He Whoa! Was, he was dead. Rumor has it that it was his own people who did him in, as he was in debt, addicted to drugs, and, quote, going rogue.
1: Ah, <sighs> wow. Hmm.
0: Oh. Yep. Jim Pattison's home is more a fortress now. Uh, surely the whole family has their heads in a swivel waiting for the next nut bar.
1: Yeah, no kidding.
0: And that's it for this week's story. Well, that was fascinating. Interesting, right?
1: That was fascinating. And, and yeah, no, I don't, even after going through this, I don't remember any of this and so uh i
0: wasn't living here at the time so it wasn't on my radar either but uh i had i had heard about it
1: over the years yeah no this is it's, it's all news to me yeah um what a wacky story right and
0: it and as much again as I'll it s- would make an yeah. It, it's it, sadly to say i think it would make a good movie
1: i think it would make a great episode or season of fargo fargo <laughs> you yeah know, exactly
0: Exactly like, that. Like, it, it just, just the bumbling uh, criminals.
1: Yeah, and, and hilarious, but yet not void of incredible tragedy. And darkness, yeah. You know, like, the the, the victims involved, this has got, they're all scarred till this day, I guarantee, Absolutely. I guarantee you. Absolutely. And it's fascinating to see how, for the most part, the core uh, players in this kidnapping continued to follow that same path. And so, you know, which I don't know, man, does that say like about the judicial system and how like it it's not set up to rehabilitate? You know, how do it's all well, fascinating. Yep. So
0: we've mentioned Jim Pattison before yep. in a Dark Prateen episode. And that one in particular was mm-hmm. episode 24 on Rene Castellani, the milkshake murderer. That is correct. In the mid 60s. Castellani was known for his stunts as an on-air personality and promotions manager at CKNW, the big radio station, Mm -hmm. which is now owned by Chorus. Correct. Who we uh, are partnered with. Yeah. In 1965, Castellani climbed atop the iconic Beaumont car dealership sign high above Broadway over what was then known as Vancouver's Auto Row. There were a lot of car dealerships Mm -hmm. down Broadway at that time. He stayed up there until the last car in the lot was sold- That was, it only took nine days for that to happen. And the lot was managed by none other than the son, the uh, successful young entrepreneur, Jim Mm Pattison. After the last car was sold, he descended and completed a task that he'd been working on for some time. And that was the murder of his wife, Esther. So Renee had been poisoning Esther with rat poisoning in vanilla milkshakes from white spot.
1: Yeah. And, uh, uh, just take a listen to our episode yeah. of it and also uh, read the book.
0: Exactly, which is what we have here. Mm-hmm. So we have a contest for two lucky Dark Poutine listeners to win a signed copy of Eve Lazarus's book on the Castellani case called Murder by Milkshake. Yes. So to enter, you have to go to darkpoutine.com slash milkshake and fill out the entry form. Contest rules are only one entry per email address. Multiple entries will result in disqualification. Contest runs between midnight, September 2nd, 2019, so the day this podcast drops, and midnight, September 9th, 2019. Winners will be chosen at random and contacted that week, the week after September 9th, at their email address for their mailing address. Winners will be announced on the September 16th 2019 episode of Dark Poutine. Please ensure you include your correct email address in the form. We have to be able to get in touch with you. If you win and you've given us a shitty email address, we're going to go on to
1: the next person. Yep. It's so awesome of Eve's you have to do this for us yes she's i agree She's just a she uh, i know you've met her i haven't but we promise I not hear. to
0: use your email in a spammy way by the way
1: <clears throat> oh for, from from what i hear from you and just what my interactions with her online she's just fantastic
0: alan and i are going to interview her next week so well oh, i mean sweet. we're going to be interviewing her yeah so that episode will be dropping the week after mm-hmm. on alan's show right on yeah so before we go, we've got a few things. Ooh. Obviously, we have some shout-outs to our patron patrons. And this week's good eggs are Angela Scoreko from Barhead, Alberta. Oh, I wonder where Barhead is. I've been to Bankhead. I have not. Hmm. It's not Head Smashed in Buffalo Jump either. Wow. That is a place. Really? Kathy Mitchell from Gastonia, North Carolina.
1: Might as well go for a soda. Not nobody. Kim Mitchell, oh. Kathy. Oh, okay.
0: Well. Thanks, Kathy.
1: Thank you, Kathy.
0: Amanda Power from St. John's, Newfoundland.
1: That is the most boss name ever. Amanda Power? Yeah. A Power is a very Newfoundland
0: name. Is I, it really? If I remember correctly, yes. Hmm. Alexandra Broich from St. Peter, Minnesota upped her pledge to PM status.
1: What, Alexandra?
0: Thank you so much. We thank you. Jacinta Harvey from Tolland in New South Wales. Thank you so much. Jacinta. Nice name. Love it. Kelly McCumber from Boulder, Colorado. Upped her pledge to PM status as well. Holy crackers. Thank you. Teresa Temlett from Maple Ridge, BC. Thank you, Teresa. Oh,
1: Teresa. Much, much appreciated.
0: Charity Hope from Sherwood Park. She upped her pledge. Sherwood Park, Alberta
1: oh okay i don't i don't i've never heard of sherwood park either
0: yeah megan barr from dartmouth ns that's where my dad uh, grew up along portland street in dartmouth oh really yep and next up we have brandy kennedy we're not sure where she's from
1: oh saskatoon oh saskatoon yeah saskatoon oh uh she's a shoveler oh they need lots of that yeah
0: yeah but what does she do in the summer then
1: beaches she shovels beaches there's no beaches yeah, sure, just in Sas- Saskatoon Beach, North North Saskatoon I think we Beach. Move on. Well, she you should see her like biceps and triceps.
0: Oh, amazing! Just incredible, and yeah. her trapezoids, her trapezoids, and her
1: underzoids.
0: Okay, whatever. <laughs> Thank you, Brandy. Linda Mio Bertolo from Hamilton, Ontario, is a PM. Holy jeez! Right? This is insane. Lucy Logan from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Thank you, Lucy.
1: What? Thank you, Lucy.
0: Maverick Robertson from Fort Collins, Colorado.
1: Oh, that is such a great name, Maverick. Maverick. Maverick.
0: What's your name? My name's Maverick.
1: Like you've got to be swarthy.
0: You have to be swarthy and you have to have a cigarette voice. Ma- yeah. My name's Maverick.
1: Yeah, exactly. Jesse McPherson Oh uh, yeah, from Rock Point, Indiana. Rock Blue. Yeah. Wow, you pulled that out of the air. It, it, well, everybody
0: knows about that place. Okay, so what does Jessie McPherson do in Rock Point?
1: Uh she's a crossing guard. Oh boy. Yeah, no, nothing exciting for her. But,
0: but for turtles. Wow. See, I knew it. Wow. Let's see how smart I. How did you I am? know that? You didn't even well, turtles have do do to it. get across the road. They
1: do. But, and, and, and but I
0: remember. That I saw a documentary about Jessie McPherson and her,
1: uh, oh,
0: her, her crossing guarding. Yeah, her.
1: the Turtle Crosser. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, it's it, it. Every time I see it, you wouldn't. It's on Netflix. <laughs> every, I've watched it seventeen times. Wow. Every time I cry. Every time. Every time, especially
0: you, when that last one just gets across yeah. and she just gives it a little nudge oh with her sign. Oh my god. It's oh, so cute. My heart. Thanks, Jessie. Sarah Hall from Bellingham, Washington, just over the border. That's just a hop, skip, and a jump away. There you go. And we got some donut money too. Maverick Robertson sent some donut money Wait, how Wait, how many well. map ma- It's the same person. What? Right, Maverick. What? So he says, episode one was my first podcast I've ever listened to two months ago. Whoa. Totally, I finally caught up. You guys are so funny and candid. Thank you for making my
1: food deliveries enjoyable chowder so oh. is he in,
0: in, is he delivering chowder that's a good question
1: then maybe um, we'll have to uh, talk to maverick to figure that out maverick the, uh, from fort collins it's colorado swarthy delivery man
0: and also brandy kennedy who we just talked about what? she sent some donut money too whoa I, I don't understand
1: it double duty from you two yeah
0: well that's fantastic double duty sweet duty. Janita Bolin sent Donut Money saying love listening to your show and love your chemistry with each other. Well, it's not real. It's not real. It's, it's fake. fake. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about case, cases with such a great level of respect to the victims while provo providing insightful
1: thoughts. That must be Mike.
0: <laughs> <laughs> love lots of love from Seattle. So sad I missed the meetup on in August. I got married the day before. And left for Victoria Island the next day. Please enjoy some donut money.
1: Well, Well, next time.
0: Well, next time. We'll come back to Seattle because you folks were so nice. Yeah, it was great. It was a good time. And some people have asked. So a lot of people are getting their mail. Yes. And they're saying, wow, thanks for the stickers. I gave people magnets surprise. A magnet was in there, Mm -hmm. like a little fridge magnet. Mm -hmm. And the note with our faces on, et cetera, et cetera. And people are saying, how do I get stickers? Well, guess what? You have to do. You have to become a patron of the show.
1: Another sweet reason, right, to become a patron. I want stickers.
0: The... I've gotten so many emails saying I want stickers.
1: Well, not only are great and powerful and meaningful after-show episodes right. are all available for you, That's life life-changing, life-changing content.
0: You can hear Scott talk. Scott and I talk about Star Wars movies last week.
1: Yep. Or uh, uh, garden gnomes up the Patootie. Yep. There's that. Pretty powerful stuff you're gonna it's get. It's powerful yeah. stuff. So this is what you get for a five dollar pledge or more.
0: So thank you so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. It means the world to us. It really does. It
1: totes does.
0: If you want to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine, or for one time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com, and that works for Interact as well. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpatine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff, like this week's contest mm-hmm. at darkpatinecom milkshake. Give us a follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Patine, And most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing our best marketing tool we do have a promo this week Mm -hmm. to play and it's from a local vancouver uh, podcast uh called brew crime and you can listen to mike beck and nina each week for their craft beer and true crime podcast so let's hear from them
1: This is Brewcrime, a craft beer and true crime podcast. I'm Mike. I'm Beck. And I'm Nina. And we're your hosts. We pair a true crime story with a craft beer that Nina will probably hate. Yeah, probably. Whatever. You can find our show on all your favorite podcast apps. And if you can't find it, contact us and we'll try and change that.
0: We can be found at Brewcrime.com or on Twitter at Brewcrime on Facebook at BrewCrime, or if you want to go to our group, it's group slash BrewCrime on Facebook, or on Instagram at Pacific Beer Chat. Join us as we discuss the horrible crimes that surround us and try not to giggle. So there you go. You can get shit-faced and listen to those guys. (laughs) It sounds like they already were. Ah, well, they're having fun. Good. Good on them. Yeah, so uh, Mike from that... from Brew Crime reached out to me and we're friends on Facebook, and uh, he's an interesting
1: cat. Sweet. Well, it's good. To, uh, we 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 enjoyed getting uh, getting help from other podcasters early on. So yeah,
0: well, Showed they the love, and we still enjoy it because they gave us a shout out last time. So. Sweet. Yeah, there you go. Right on. So that's it for this week. Until next week. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple.
1: Bye bye, everybody. Good night. That was very dainty of you.